Um, so we are in Romans chapter 11 this morning, and um, this is widely considered to be one of the most complicated and complex uh, chapters in all of Romans, some would say in all of uh, the New Testament. Um, and uh, so we're going to go through it a little bit differently this morning. If I read the whole, the whole chunk that we're going to be in right now, uh, and, I, and I just said, okay, now let's dive into it, even just reading it all at once can kind of be so overwhelming that you just are like, I don't, I think I'm done. You know, I'm just going to go out and I'd kill for a good Beatitude sermon right now or something like that. Um, so we're going to look at it little, little bits by little bits here as we go. But before we get into it, you know, something that we keep talking about as we're in Romans 11 um, has to do with this idea of perspective and kind of where we come from as we hear the gospel and how we respond to it. Who we are, really our experiences tend to influence the way that we respond to this good news of the gospel. Um, I'll never forget when I was uh, a youth pastor, I did the thing that almost every youth pastor is like required by law to do, which is at some point be on a missions trip in some Latin American country and uh, be asked to give a sermon that will be translated as you're giving it. Um, it's like a rite of passage or something. And so I remember um, being in Mexico um, with our youth group and uh, they had asked me to share the message at the church or a message at the church that morning. Um, I think they probably now in retrospect were thinking like five minutes um, and I was thinking, you know, much bigger because of course they'd want to hear so much more. Um, but but never never mind that. So uh, because of course I'm sure they loved it. But as I got up and as I shared, um, it was being translated by my friend Veronica, and she was standing over here. And so as I was speaking, she was translating everything that I was saying. Well, I decided that I was just going to really go for it. You know, none of this like you know, you know, easy to take. You know, like lukewarm type stuff. No, I was just going to go right for the jugular. I was going to talk about the most intense things that I could think to talk about having no understanding of how things might be different over, let's say, different cultures. Um, and so as I was talking, I decided to, uh, at first I was talking at one point in the message about, um, about uh, babies, and I said something about how my children, uh, you know, got to this age when they were too old for their crib, and you know when that's happening, because they just show up next to your bed. Uh, you wake up one morning, and you're like, and there you are. Okay, I guess it's time to uh, add some boards to the crib, which is what I did, uh, because I was too poor to, but we were too, we were, we were like, we're not ready. We're not ready to do this bed thing yet. None of you know what that feels like, so we just added boards to the top of the crib. It was very safe. I think they make nets now. Anyway, I was telling this story, and as I was telling it, she was looking at me, and she was making these motions with her hands, and she was like saying uh, very, like a lot for every time I said, like crib or something like that and she was looking very concerned the people were looking very confused and very concerned and I was uh, I, I talked with her afterwards and she basically said listen people don't really have cribs here like that's not really as much of a thing as it is where you are at least not in this area not in this community not in this church so I'm basically having to describe to these people how people in America put their babies in cages and I'm having to I'm having to translate crib into like baby cage cage for baby cage that baby goes in you know and uh, and it's so hard when their baby climbs out of their cage, you know? And, and I'm like, that's not really, but okay. I mean, I guess it is really. Um, and believe me, if it was like, if it was, yeah, anyway. So then I go on and, um, and as I was talking, 
again, I decided I was going to use an example of something that was kind of intense, but it was like, you know, this is a real thing and people need to talk about these things. And so I, decide, so I use, like kind of in passing, I use the, the example of how, of how many people in the church today struggle with pornography, but it's not something that people often talk about. Well, I was, I was certainly right about that second part because as I started talking about that, Veronica just decided she wasn't going to translate what I was saying. She was like, I'm, we're not going to talk about this because we don't talk about this here in this church. That's not a thing that people talk about maybe like they talk about in the church back in America. So as I was talking about it and I was getting all fired up and saying how we need to care about it, she's just not translating anything. And there was a lot of power that she had, and I'm glad that Veronica exercised that power. That's why I like Veronica translating, because she will just be like, nope, not going to work. You'll thank me later. Um, <laughs> there, there is something very significant about, um, about where we come from culturally and where we come from with our own experiences and our own lives and our own backgrounds that greatly affects how we hear and process things, especially the things we come across in the Bible. Nowhere is that more apparent than with the good news of the gospel. Because as good as that news may be, if you take a person who grows up in a family of high achievers who are known well and are highly regarded and highly respected, who goes to the best college, that, that, that one of the best universities that we have in our country, and who does incredibly well building this life for themselves, and you present the message to a person like this who has everything uh, that they've ever known uh, riding on what you can accomplish yourself as a person, your value is reflected in those things. It may makes your family proud. It makes everyone proud. It gives you purpose and meaning. When someone shares with you the incredibly good news that, that you depend on grace alone, not anything you've ever done to be saved, that may not sound like the best news. And a person in a position where they feel that they have no confidence in the things that they've done and what they're trying to do, maybe their life has fallen apart, maybe their life's going okay, but they feel like there's no way that I'm still anywhere close to where I need to be or should be, or maybe you just feel like giving up in life because your circumstances have gotten so difficult, the message of the grace of God. The reminder that our God is much, much bigger than our good works and our good deeds can ever get us to him. That is an incredibly good message. That is good news. What we find in the church that Paul's speaking to in Rome, a church that was made up of two different types of people, Jewish Christians uh, or, or, or Christians who came out of the Jewish faith, the Jewish culture which placed a tremendous amount of value on honor and on shame, on the ability to follow the law that God had given them, on the culture they had as a people, on what they could accomplish and who they could be. Uh, the church was made up of Christians who had actually managed to, through all of that, hear and see the need for God's grace still, while the majority of the Jewish people had rejected the gospel. They just said, this is incompatible with how we want to see the world and how we want to see ourselves. The church was also made up of Gentile Christians, people who responded more quickly to the grace of God because of the experience that they were bringing with them into it. The church is made up of these two very different groups of Christians. There are more Gentiles than there are Jewish Christians, uh, which means there are more people uh, coming from one culture, from one understanding, than another. And that affects what the church is. Now, what we talked about last week was that it is uh, 
the, for the most part, the case that God's people, the Jewish people, had rejected the gospel, by and large. And, and yet, there was this encouragement that we looked at, which was Paul saying, but there is no group of people that God cannot reach. There is no situation God cannot reach into. There is no set of circumstances that God cannot, uh, that the gospel cannot break through. There is no amount of uh, deconstructing of a, of a faith or, or a past or a background or any of that stuff that can make someone unreachable with the good news of the gospel. So not even all the Jewish people will actually have rejected God. Some will still choose him because of the power of the gospel, and that's very good news. That still puts us in a position, though, where if you're a Jewish person and you're hearing the gospel as Paul's presenting it in Romans, you're probably feeling kind of bad about yourself and your group of people. You're probably in this situation where you're feeling like, obviously, it seems that the Gentiles are the ones who are more open to this and more ready to accept this thing. In fact, they make up the most of the church. So it feels, if anything, not like they're in my church, which is kind of how it started. It feels like I'm in their church, and I don't like how that feels at all. It can feel kind of disheartening if you're a Jewish person hearing this. It is to uh, this situation that we pick up where we left off in Romans 11 last week. And we're going to look at just, I think, two verses here in the beginning. And we're going to talk about them. This chapter is one of the most encouraging chapters that you can read as a part of a church living in a fallen world. But it can also be one of the most confusing and complicated. And so hopefully it's not, not the second one for you this morning. Hopefully it's the first one. I'm going to turn this thing on. And we're going to put up the first two verses on the screen here. So I ask, did they stumble, the Jewish people, in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is a very low point if you're a Jewish person. You have, they have stumbled. Seems that they have fallen. And the question really that is being begged to ask is, is this just totally hopeless for that group of people? I would imagine that if I'm someone like Paul, who was born and raised in this culture, who was the Jew of Jews, he would say, who was an example of someone who lived that lifestyle better than any other, that he would be looking at the people that he himself came from, and he would be feeling pretty down about them, about their situation. And uh, if it is true that God created these people so that he would be known in the earth. He would save these people. The world would see him through them and the way they would live and the things they would do. Doesn't it kind of mean that God failed? If this is where we find ourselves now? I mean, if the Jewish people reject God, yeah, sure, it's their choice. They, do, they chose it. They decided it. But isn't God big enough that he could overcome all of that and still this whole great project of Israel could actually succeed because it doesn't seem like that's what's happening right now. 
If you're a Jewish person, this isn't a great thing to read. And a lot of them were feeling it. God says, I have a plan. I'm going to use these people. I'm going to make the world, I'm going to make the world know me through these people. And yet it doesn't really seem like God's plan is going very well. It doesn't really seem um, like good things are happening. Paul's encouragement to the church in this moment, in these two verses that we read, is that the game's not over yet. Do not lose hope. Do not be discouraged because God is going to use even what looks like them failing and giving up. Even this whole grand experiment going wrong, he is going to even use that to reach others. And ultimately, he's even going to use uh, other groups of people accepting the gospel to reach the Jewish people who rejected it. See how it starts to get confusing? Like, wait, what happened? Who? How did this happen? When I was, uh, first came to faith, it was after growing up in a family that didn't really believe much in God. We went to church, but we didn't have really a faith as a family. I would say my family didn't come from really a Christian family. And yet, through my connection to my not super Christian family, I had an opportunity to go to a camp where I heard the gospel and I responded to the good news of it and I became a Christian and I came home on fire for Jesus and then dedicated myself to my family knowing the gospel. That somehow, by them not knowing the gospel, it somehow brought me to this place where I still was able to know the gospel, and then I was able to bring the gospel to them, even though it was as though they had rejected it before. If you want to put yourself in the place of the church hearing this, at least part of the church, you have to put yourself in the lowest place possible, which may not sound very fun. I don't want to think about things that are hard or difficult. But the truth is that what Paul is telling the church is he is saying that even when it looks like all hope is lost, even when it looks like God himself has failed, even when it looks like things are not going the way you ever thought they would go, God is still for you. God is for us, says Paul earlier in Romans. And it is in the situations when it feels like that is the least true that it is the most true. And we need to hear it the most. We experience so much pain in life. That pain can be things that we would never think of as the big tragic stuff that happens that no one wants to have happen. It can be as simple as, and this has nothing to do with me turning 40 last week. This could be as simple as we lose our youth. We find ourselves watching ourselves grow up in life going, I didn't expect that it would go quite like this. We grow older and we lament the way that we physically are growing older. This isn't how I thought it would be or I didn't think it would happen this soon. We lose things. We lose things like the dreams that we have in life. Our careers change. Our families don't look the way we thought they would. Our children may not come the way we thought they would. Or they may come and they may be different than we thought they would be. They may view us differently or we may feel that as parents we're doing a completely different job than we ever thought we would do. 
Every time that we, that we move, that we change our job, that we have some big transition, we lose a little bit of stability that we really thought that we would have in life. And instead of just sort of things building on each other, we feel like that's rarely ever actually what's happening for us. It can even be things that seem good. Our kids, they grow, they become more independent. Our influence and power decrease in their life. And that's hard. That's a loss. We find ourselves sad about that. Our parents age, and we become their caretakers. People who we used to look up to, people who we used to come to and look to for strength and advice are now in a position where they struggle to remember things, where they struggle to be who they were and the way that they were. And we find ourselves in the position of caring for them there. We lose someone in our family unexpectedly. We lose people in our lives. We get divorced. There are affairs. There's a suicide of a child. There's the death of a grandchild. There's a diagnosis of something that changes our life from one day to the next, causing us to go, I never, ever, ever thought that my life would be this life that I have today. Our company downsizes, we lose our job, this pan some pandemic happens and everything gets turned upside down and all the things that we thought kind of kept things stable went away. Our friends betray us, they abandon us. We struggle with infertility, we struggle with miscarriages, we lose our own memories, we deal with abuse in our lives, we grieve the things that we can't do. We find ourselves in the position of a victim more than we ever thought we would, or we look in the mirror and find ourselves in the position of one who is hurting others by the choices that we're making and the things that we're doing. These are all things in life that happen, and they're all things that God can change. They're all things that God can stop tomorrow if he wanted to. That's what the Bible tells us. They're all things that don't really have to happen. And yet they do. And so how do we, in that place, trust that God is still for us? How do the Jewish people trust that God is still for them, even though it seems like the whole thing failed? God is our Father, and as we look to him as his children, we ask this question, and it's a very painful one to ask. If you were to give an example of a person uh, who God is for, you know, you think of people in this world who are so successful. You think of the people who are like the most successful people in the world, the people whose lives are like beyond um, attainable for the rest of us, and yet they are just this... Who could do better than that person? And if that's what it looked like for God to be for someone, then God is for them. If you want to know an example of someone who's like that in the Bible, there's this guy named Job who lived a life quite a bit like that. Job was, for all intents and purposes, the most successful man who existed on the planet at the time that he was alive. He had more wealth, he had more family, he had more security, he had more friends, he had more of everything... And if you looked at his life, you would say God is for him. 
And the story of Job is a story of that man losing everything. And then the worldview having to change dramatically from here's how you know God is for you, that these good things happen, to God can be for you even when you find yourself in the place Job wasn't the end. And the great thing about Job at the end of his story was that he was able to say after, having lose, after losing all of those great things, God is still for me. To be able to suffer, to be able to lose, to be able to have things not go the way we want, and to still say at the end of the day, God is for me. That is the challenge. We all know those parents who spoil their kids like rotten, and they turn out into little monsters. And we go, man, that's not doing those kids any favors at all. I am for my children. I want them to have the best life possible. But sometimes for a parent to be for their child, it means not bailing them out. Figuratively or literally. I, I, this is not a real situation in my house yet. Okay. I don't have a 10-year-old that I didn't bail out. Okay. And for the record, my mom bailed me out. Literally. Okay. At one point in my life. It wasn't recently. Don't worry. I just had a crazy 40th weekend. You know. No. Sometimes what it means to be for your child is to let them sit in the cell. To let them deal with what's happening. Because you know that that is what they need. Sometimes, even though I am so for my children, being for them will cause me to take them into a doctor's office when they're a sweet, adorable, little defenseless baby who has complete and total trust in me and have them put shots in their arm and make them scream and cry. Things that might even make them sick. And I do that because I want to avoid something far worse that could happen to them. If I don't, much of parenting and raising children teaches us about how it looks to truly be for someone and how sometimes that means the circumstances can look the opposite. Here, Paul is saying that even what seems like God abandoning them is meant to lead them towards reconciliation with him. In fact, for the Israelites, what was best for them at this point, he says, is to see from the outside what it looks like to follow God. He says here, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. What? God says they did not respond to my gospel over here. And so they will watch another group of people respond, and as that happens, it will cause them to feel jealous for the relationship that these people have with me, their God. They will see things in the church that will cause them to envy what it is to follow God in that new way, and they will start to see just how powerful grace is and that it is actually something that they desire. But they'll only see it, he says, from the outside. They're not going to see it from the inside. That God will even use their, their enemies 
to speak to them about the gospel. A good example of this is in Acts 6, 1 through 7, where we read about uh, the early church who sets apart officers. We call them deacons to care for the needy. We're told that when this happens, a lot of Jewish priests converted to Christ. And a good argument for why that happened is because in the Old Testament, God does say to his people in Deuteronomy, he says that your, your, your poor will be fed, your widows will be taken care of. And the truth was that, that in the Jewish community, they were often failing their widows and failing to truly care for the poor as they were supposed to. And that there were a number of Jewish priests who saw that the early church was actually doing what God had said his people would do. And that there was an envy there. They said, you know, they actually do seem to be living out what God's people were supposed to live out. And that a number of Jewish priests left that group and went to this new group because they saw something in it from the outside. He ultimately says that these people, uh, that their trespass will mean riches for the world. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? The first thing that we see here in this chapter is so encouraging if you are anyone who is dealing with anything that is hard. And I think there's a couple of you in here. Whether you are dealing with something that you don't feel like you have any control over whatsoever or whether you are dealing with something that you feel like is, the, is your own making. The message that we see here is that we need to hear that God is for us. Not just, uh, we, don't, we don't come to the conclusion that God is for us by looking around at our circumstances and saying, look at how great they are. We come to the conclusion that God is for us because of what he allows us to experience and to endure, trusting that he is drawing us closer to him in that. There is nothing more important than that, than us growing closer with him. That is to give us hope and encouragement in the midst of some very dark times. And those words are true. He goes on in verse 17 to say this. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Okay, so now what Paul's doing is he's moving on and he's using this metaphor of branches and a tree. And it's a super weird metaphor if you're hearing it in the original context, because honestly, this was not something that happened very much. It wasn't like, I mean, let's just say you're a, a, a person who is in agriculture and you own a bunch of olive trees in a field, right? You probably don't spend a lot of your time that day going up to a tree and saying, I don't like this branch, I'm going to snip it off and add one to the tree, right? You probably don't do that. For the most part, grafting in of things is something that's like not really done in agriculture when you depend on the thing. It's done kind of for fun. It's done kind of to add something. The only time I've ever seen anything grafted into something was in Hawaii. I saw orchids grafted onto the trunks of palm trees. And I'm pretty sure that it was only like that because people were like, if I'm paying this much money to look at these palm trees, I want to not have to look that high up to see something. So put something right here and then I'll look at it. 
And they're like, okay, fine, you are paying a lot of money to see this palm tree. Grafting is not something that happened much. And there are some scholars that will kind of dig around and will say, oh, here's this very obscure reference to how grafting is a thing. But this is not something that people did very often. It's kind of like, Paul, are you running out of metaphors and illustrations? Are you just like losing steam? No, what Paul's explaining is something that seems totally unnatural to the people. It is, uh, he's saying, I want you to think of yourselves, Jews and Gentiles, as branches on a tree. And I want you to think of yourselves as branches on this tree, and God is the root of the tree. He is the one that's growing this wonderful thing called the church. And you're all these little branches on the tree, and if it helps you, you can think, you know, eyeballs and arms and everything, and they talk to each other. That's fine. That, that helps me to think of it that way. So think of all these branches on this tree, and some are Jews, some are Gentiles. And what he's saying is he's saying that in this tree, because of what happened, and this tree that he grew, that he produced over these thousands of years with his people, that those who rejected him were cut off, and then he grafted in the Gentile people. They didn't have to grow from the scratch in the tree. He was able to graft in anybody. So then you get this little picture, you get this whole thing happening, and then if you're Paul and you're saying this, the first thing that Paul assumes is this. Get your picture in your head of a tree with a bunch of branches, and they're all happy, and they're having a good time, and they're a part of this tree together, and they all have their arms and their eyes and their mouths, and they're doing their thing. Paul's assuming, right out of the gate, he says, this. If some of the branches are broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, what is his first instruction to them? Do not be arrogant toward the branches. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, uh, if everyone's a branch on a tree, they're all just going to be arrogant and compete with each other. Well, thanks, Paul. That's a nice thing to say, right? Paul's basically saying, I know you guys. You're coming from different places, so here's what's going to happen. As much as you want to think you're all going to get along well and it's going to be perfectly harmonious, you're actually going to do what people tend to do when they get together. We get together in this thing called the church. We come together in community, and then we immediately start doing this. And we start looking around. And we look around and we do the only thing that we know how to do when we're in the midst of other people. We compare ourselves to other people. We look at other people and we say, uh, you're different from me. And here's why I don't like this thing about you that's different from me. We look at people who are the same as us and we think, maybe I like this thing about you because you're the same as me. Comparison is such a messed up thing that we almost can't help but do. That we look around and we say, I know better because I'm more spiritual. I know better because I have more history and experience. I know better because I'm younger. I know better because I'm older. I know better because I'm coming from this culture or this background and I hear things the right way. Oh, no, no, you're wrong. I know better because I'm coming from over here. I know better because my family built this place. Yeah, well, well that person in your family was cut off and I got grafted in. And so which one of us really deserves to be here? So much of the church is, is people looking at one another saying, uh, I think that I'm better than you. Much of the time, comparison leads us either to feeling arrogance, as Paul's saying, they'll be tempted to feel if they're Gentiles, 
or it leads us to feeling totally discouraged. Because that's the other thing about comparison, is you either feel like you're doing better, or you feel like constantly you're being reminded of how you're not measuring up, how you're doing terribly. What a shock to believe that when social media was invented. What a shock to believe that people thought that it would actually, by being able to constantly compare ourselves to one another in all of our best moments, right? That mean, it may actually bring us a little further apart. And I've talked to so many people who are like, I have to get as far away from that stuff as I can because it's just like, it's like a toxic thing for me. Because I can't not compare myself. I can't just enjoy what I'm seeing in another person's life without thinking about the absence of that thing in my life. Or I can't experience a thing in my life without thinking about how to show it to other people so that they can experience that thing in their life. Paul's talking to the Gentiles who are finding themselves to be a little bit arrogant. They're arrogant because they're going, we're the ones who responded. We're the ones who were ready to listen. We're the group who really has finally figured it out, unlike all the people that came before us. And Paul is saying to them that what you're going to do with that is you're going to be arrogant. We like this idea that the church, when we're inside the church, is really mostly just the people that make it up. Right? The power of the church is in how good all of us are. The power of the church is in how well we're doing living our lives a certain way. In fact, if we believe that, then we might for a season feel like we're a part of a good church, but much of the time it'll lead us to yet another church and yet another church. We'll be a part of a community. We'll say, this isn't how it's supposed to be, and I believe that if I'm somewhere where it's how it's supposed to be, then everything will be different and it will be better. I'm doing it the right way, but these other people aren't doing it the right way. I just need to be around people who are doing it the right way like me. That isn't how the Bible describes the power of the church. The church is not a place for people who have great potential to build on that potential and become even better. The church is a place of resurrection of dead things. It is a, it is a hospital. It is a funeral home. It is a place uh, where things um, go and are given new life. And the power of that place is not in how great each and every one of us is individually, it is in God himself, which is why Paul's encouragement to them is this, and it's the encouragement to us. Don't look around at each other so much. Where does he say to focus? Where does he say to look? Focus on the root of the tree. When in doubt, everybody, focus on the root of the tree. It is so true that if we look around, there will always be something to be discouraged about. There will always be something to be disheartened by. Now, we may look around and always try to find something to be excited about or that's positive, but much of the time we'll realize that wasn't necessarily the root itself. It wasn't God, and it wasn't lasting. It was just this other thing. Paul's encouragement to the Gentiles is to focus on God because he is the power of the church not any one group of people. 
Remember, Paul loves the Roman church. He has such a high view of them. And he is saying to them at this time that what makes you good will not be that you have figured out which one of these groups is better. Or how to form the perfect third group or something like that. It is that you continue to focus on the source of your life, which is the root of the tree. The branches will come and go. The fruits will grow and fall and grow again, but the root is going to keep producing and staying connected. Still drawing life from this thing is where you are to be. Scripture tells us again and again that we are branches and that the only way that we can find any life is to be connected to the vine or to the tree. The point of that is not to celebrate how beautiful all the branches are. If anything, we celebrate the diversity of a tree that looks like the weirdest tree you've ever seen because it's got all these branches grafted into it. The third thing that Paul says is this. We read in verses, uh, if we go on and read, kind of jump ahead a little bit. Or verses 19 and 20, actually, we're not jumping ahead. He says, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Here immediately after comes a warning to the church, and he says, this is what you need to focus on right now. Don't focus on what someone else has done. Don't focus on how someone else has fallen. Don't focus on the shortcomings that you see everywhere else. Focus on this right here. Learn, if anything, from it. And the lesson to be learned is this. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. There are two directions, he says, that one of these branches is going to go. It is going to grow proud, or it is growing to have a fear, which is an awe, not terror, but an awe of the size and the magnificence and the power of God. If you're a branch and you're grafted into the tree, you can only go one of two directions. You will grow entitled and proud, or you will continue to grow in your fear of the Lord. Those are the only two directions, says Paul, that they will grow. And so he encourages them to hold fast. To hold fast. He says to them this warning, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You're not getting any special treatment because you got grafted in. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The last thing that Paul really says here is he gives a warning. And his warning is this, hold fast, stay connected to the root at all costs. He says, here's what will help you do that. Remember the kindness of God and remember the severity of God. Remember that for those who choose to disconnect, who choose to reject the grace of the gospel, who choose to stop moving forward in awe of who God is, that for those people, he says, they will experience the severity of God. 
There is never a point where the branch gets totally secure and says, I'm in this tree, I don't have to worry or think about it anymore, I'm good. And then he also says to continue in the kindness of God. He says to hold fast. This language of persevering and of holding fast to the kindness of God. The way that we stay connected is we hold fast to the kindness of God. In many parts of the Midwest where there are these terrible, crazy blizzards that happen, farmers will often tie a rope from the the door from the back of their house all the way to their barn. And the point of the rope is so that when the blizzard is going crazy and the storm is, is blowing around you and there is no visibility, that you can at least find your way to the barn and back. And the only way that you do it is you hold on to this rope. You hold fast to this rope. That is what gets you to where you need to go. Paul is saying, hold fast, and the rope is the kindness of God. The kindness of God is what you are to focus on. The kindness that brought you into this tree, Gentiles, that grafted you in, that brought you in here from the outside, even though you couldn't have been further away. And the kindness of God that for those of you who grew up in this thing and knew this thing and rejected it and walked away, the kindness of God who managed to bring you back even through your enemies and the people that you loathe the most. That is the kindness of God. That is God being for you and not against you. So hold on to that thing. Don't get comfortable and think I'm automatically a part of the tree just because I'm a part of the tree. This is not meant to cause people to fear that they're going to lose their salvation, to fear that they're going to lose their faith. Paul is talking to a pretty healthy church, and he's saying to them, he's pleading with them, he's saying, please don't make the mistake of just growing content and entitled and proud because you're grafted in. And the way you're going to do that is by not looking around you at everybody else and judging where everything's at in your life based on these people. It is to focus on the root, to hold fast to the kindness of God. Probably from this, the most complex passage in Romans, the one part of it that we actually know comes at the very end, and it has to do with awe, and it has to do with his response to that awe. Paul says this, if we jump all the way ahead to the end of the chapter, and it's how we close this this morning because there's no better way to do it. He says of the most complex stuff that he's brought up. I mean, you were talking about like these people are in, then they're out, then they're in, then they're out, then, then their enemies are actually enemies that help them, and don't, but not you, and the way you see yourself is different from over here. And it's like this whole crazy dotted line blueprint, those dance step things that Goofy has to follow when he's trying to learn how to dance. You're like, how in the world do we follow this stuff? This is so difficult, so hard to do. What Paul says at the end of this chapter about how your brain is hurting and it's aching and you're like, how on earth are we supposed to make sense of this? He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul speaks here to the absolute majesty of God. He is speaking to how God is so big 
that we cannot wrap our minds around him and his complexity. When we think about the majesty of God, we usually think about big mountains. And we think about solar systems that are spanning far on into infinity. We think about huge periods of time that have passed and that come and that go and how small we feel in, in the grand scheme of that. But when Paul is talking about God's majesty and about how difficult it is for us to comprehend him, he's talking about how hard it is to wrap our minds around his plan. He is saying we will look at our lives and we will look at the world out there and we will say, how on earth could God actually be in charge of all of this? And how could I trust that? He is for me in it. And Paul says, I know. I know. But I do not want a God that I can comprehend. I do not want a God who I have made in my image because then I get the easy answers to the questions I'm dealing with today. I want a God who has made me in his image. And Paul's response to that majesty of God is to proclaim through the Psalms and to worship. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to respond to the complexity of God, to the difficulty that we might be feeling, and to the fact that when he says he is for us, it is so hard to wrap our minds around how that could be in the day that we're living in today. And we're going to worship him and praise him for how much bigger he is than us. Would you stand with us? Amen.